Are you ready to take your marketing and advertising game to the next level? Join us at Advertising Week Europe at Picture House Central in London this 16th to 18th of May. Gain unparalleled insights and inspiration from the industry's top minds and network with the biggest brands and agencies in a city known for creativity and innovation. With top industry leaders from brands like Primark, Arla Foods, Uber, and Heineken. Inspiring speakers including talent supremo Simon Cowell and fashion designer Harris Reed, as well as cutting-edge insights, this is your chance to stay ahead of the curve. From AI to brand insights to the latest in tech and everything in between, Advertising Week Europe has got you covered. Join us at Advertising Week Europe and discover why it's a must-attend event for anyone in the marketing and advertising industry at any level. Register now at advertisingweek.com slash Europe and use promo code AW25 for 25% off of your passes. Welcome to Great Minds, and today we have a really special guest who I met, Tanya, how long? Three, four months ago now? Yeah, it wasn't that long. This year. This year. In uh, a wonderful place in Mexico, we met at a gathering of a group that I certainly am embarrassed to be a part of, the Genius 100. And it's an extension and ties to Albert Einstein University in Israel. Our great friend Ido Aroni, the former ambassador and kind of a, just a real shaker and a mover and a doer and a connector. And Tanya and I met at that gathering and I was incredibly struck by your story. And I thought it was a story worth telling to our audience here on Great Minds. So I'm thrilled to welcome Ottawa's finest, Tanya Woods, founder of Project In Kind. So welcome. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be here. <laughs> so, Tanya, uh, the format that we had the meeting in Mexico was kind of everybody got a little chance to share their story. And uh, when you have a gathering of people from all over the world involved in all different, the common thread was everybody in that room, my take, Tanya was trying to help something. And that was the common thread of everyone that was there. Your story was uh, uh, really, really uh, something. And I'd love to go back uh, and take you back to London and ask you to share that story here. And we'll dig a little bit deeper on some parts, talk about what you're doing now with Project In Kind, what the grander vision is for it. It's a model that's working, that's having a real impact on real people. Uh, and after all, that's why we're all here is to try to help others and lift up others. I think not everyone sees that. Certainly on the day we're recording, we're reminded of uh, what it's like to be selfish versus selfless with what's happening in lower Manhattan right now. Uh, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But I'd love to take you back to London and share your story. Oh, wow. Thanks. You know, um, I'll tell you, Matt, for years, I didn't tell the story at all. And I think, you know, when we were together in Mexico, I shared it for probably maybe the fifth or sixth time. Um, it was a lot, it was a lot to share. And I'm really delighted you've asked me about it here. But, um, you know, we can go way back to 2005. And at the time, I was a law school student uh, in London, England, and I had my heart set on working with artists and working in the art market 
and and doing cool things with creative people, which is, you know, always something I've enjoyed. And um, it was summertime and it was really, really hot. And it was uh, it was July 7th. And so for those of you who don't know the significance of that day, uh, I'll walk you through it. But for me, it was a normal day at the start. Um, by the end, my life was completely different. And I was leaving my my flat. And of course, you know, you can imagine a broke student and, you know, too many people living in a small space and, and getting out was always a highlight. But I was off to my my work in the city with my husband that day. And, you know, we stepped outside and it was a scorcher, but it was beautiful. We walked along the canal. We walked into Paddington Station. And, you know, if you've been in Paddington Station, uh, you know what it's like. It's a hustle bustle in the morning and everybody's running everywhere and it's it's madness. If you've never been, you can imagine, you know, a very grand, beautiful station, uh, the scene probably out of many movies. And, you know, part of part of the trip every morning was walking through it. It was wonderful. It was a total dream come true for me to be there. And the summer job I landed was with a great law firm. I was working for the bank. I mean, like the world was great. We were on top of it and and pursuing our dreams. And, and you know, as we were getting started out in life and we we went down the escalator. So it's a very short ride kind of down to the tube platform where we catch our subway every day. And on our way down, you know, I looked at my husband and I said, like, it was really hot. And I was kind of dreading the stickiness of the subway. And I'm sure New York gets like this, too. And um, we were walking up to to the platform and something just it tugged. It tugged really hard at me. And I just got nervous and anxious. And I just said I looked at him and I said, do, do we need to do it today? And my my foot was sort of like half on the tube, the door had opened at this point and we were sort of the last ones to get on. And he looked at me and I could see something wasn't right. And he said, you know what? I can be a little late today. And I, I just gasped this kind of big sign. I took my foot sort of off and it all happened within moments. And I, and we went back upstairs um, and the tube, you know, pulled away and we walked up and didn't think again of it. And about 45, 50 minutes later, um, we got to our, you know, respective places in the city, got off our bus. We decided to take a bus and we said goodbye, have a great day, have a great day. And I walked toward my office around the corner from his. And when I got in there, it was hysteria. It was absolutely pandemonium, panic and hysteria. And they said, you know, we weren't sure what happened to you and where were you? And I thought, oh, my goodness, like, you know, I know I help everybody around this place, but I can't be that important. What is going on? And I had no idea what I had just, you know, kind of missed by by a, literally a breeze. Um, the phones, you know, weren't really working. Um, the secretary said to me, Tanya, there's been there's been chaos in the subway and it happened right near you. And I said, what do you mean? And we backtracked it and we looked at things and we thought, oh, my God, um, terrorists had blown up the subway it was we, we mapped it out we were pretty much 99.9 percent .9 confidence our subway that we would have been on blew up at edgeware road the following station after paddington the buses um where we used to live the year before around bloomsbury there had been a bus explosion and in the city there had been a couple stops past where we would typically get off for work it had also been blown up and so began the change um you know the day of an event like that, you're in New York, Matt, and New Yorkers, you know, that have lived through 9-11 have their stories. Everybody has their story of that day. And, you know, in so many ways, I'm grateful for mine. Um, and yet I struggled with it. 
you know, the, the strange feelings around knowing that people died, people died on their regular commute, the same commute that I would have taken. It's a bit, it's a big thing to process. People didn't deserve to die. They didn't deserve it at all. Um, this shouldn't have happened. Why did these things happen? For years, I questioned it. Um, I actually had to leave London. I suffered very serious post-traumatic stress disorder after. Um, and it wasn't even as much the day of, it was everything that followed. Because of where we lived, we were shuttled on and off buses with police and guns and the city was chaos for weeks and weeks. There was um, you know, pandemonium behind us in, in Bayswater at the, the tube there. A young Brazilian, I think he was a, a young Brazilian worker, ended up being shot dead because he was suspicious. Everybody became suspicious. And, you know, Edgware Road is this vibrant place. London, for my London, was a vibrant place. And and so many cultures coexisted in such an amazing way. And the police didn't have guns before that time. And overnight, the place changed. And it changed me. It, you know, I was so afraid, like many, I was so afraid of, like, what's happening now and you don't really know how to handle it. The British are amazing. They have like such a stiff upper lip, they get it, you know, they get it honestly and sadly at the same time from years of experience with various, you know, interfaces with terrorism and, and violence and so on. But that's not my norm. I mean, I grew up in Ottawa um, until recently, Ottawa is like the place, you know, where lumberjacks started our country and it's so peaceful and small. And I had never lived in, in a world like that. And so I I had been really enjoying my studies. And I I was so grateful beyond words. I still am grateful beyond words. There's no words that could capture the experience properly for this format, you know, or any maybe. But I I survived. I wasn't hurt. I didn't die. I survived as a witness. And when you witness something, it behooves you to live the experience forward and it behooves you to do something good. And, and that's the, the value proposition that kind of cemented itself very quickly. I thought, all right, so I'm not able to carry on. I don't know how to handle this. I'm going to head back to Canada and finish my studies. I'm not leaving London. I'm not leaving it here. I'm taking it with me. I'm taking everything about this place with me. It's gonna stay with me forever and ever. And I'm grateful that I've had these experiences. I'm grateful I was there to begin with. It's it's a privilege to go to a wonderful school like the London School of Economics. That's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to put yourself through school. It's a privilege to live in a city like that. It is a privilege. And I had learned a lot and I, I committed very, very quickly. I thought, okay, what am I gonna put my life to? What kind of good use am I gonna do with this, this situation? And with what I have, and I didn't have money. <laughs> I was poor. I, you know, for a long time, you don't, you don't continue on post secondary and end up with a big bag of money right away. That doesn't happen, um, if ever. But it doesn't happen then. And I thought, okay, I've learned. I've had the privilege of studying at this amazing academic institution. I've had the privilege of being alongside some of the most brilliant creative minds in the world. Like, and I want to help them. I want them to be more brilliant. I want them to be so successful and law is a tool that can help them to get there. And so, you know, that day was a big day. Those weeks following seemed like an eternity, but, um, but I came back and I started putting it to good use. Talk about the aftermath. You talk, mentioned post-traumatic syndrome. 
you, um, I would imagine, I was in the World Trade Center many, many years ago. My office was there in the early 90s when there was a uh, relatively minor terrorist attack in, in con contrast with what happened in 2001. But I would imagine there was a lot of guilt associated with that. What did, why did I get to live while others did not back off that platform? That must have been a lot to wrestle with. It was huge. It was huge. Um, I buried it for a long time. I didn't even want to deal with that. Like, it was just, thank God I had lifelines to get me out of London so I could try and find a sense of peace. Um, thank goodness I had a law school to receive me and give me some credit for the work I had done. I was going into my last year. I already had a job secured. I was I was doing exceptional work in the space of arts um, and law. It was awesome. Like I was just living so so privileged and so fortunate and and doing really well. And I think I struggled with the loss of of that life. Like you know, Ottawa and London are very different places. <laughs> and so you know, I I was sad I had to leave that place I was building my life. I was sad I had to leave my friends. I was you know, not even phase that I had to do, you know, more schooling and start again. And that didn't even bother me. But it wasn't until maybe like a couple of years after that it really, I let the guilt seep in. And, you know, I left London with so much fear. I felt like, you know, I was in some kind of fishbowl and I never knew if there was a gun pointed at the top. And I mean, I can visualize that because it's the distinct feeling. I just never knew what was going on. And it was chaos for so many weeks and months after. It was constantly getting rerouted off buses. You know, all of a sudden you couldn't use a tube because there was something suspicious. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. Like it was very, very, very alarming. And then the guilt set in. So once I kind of realized I was safe, once I kind of realized I was back-ish on track then the heavy, heavy load started to settle in. And it was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I, I, I was grateful it wasn't me. And then I felt guilty it wasn't me. It was really, really difficult. And at some point, the notion of helping others evolved. Talk about that journey from that initial trauma and horror and fear to guilt to a little glimmer of sunshine and a fierce determination to better the lives of other people. One of the things I had been doing in London was working with this uh, very cool group of lawyers. You know, some of them were like lawyers from Madonna and like pretty big names in music. And um, they had started a project called Own It. And the city of London was very supportive of the arts. And it was lawyers basically working pro bono with uh, fashion designers, you know, artists, dancers, you know, performers, like you pick it, they were, they were there and they were trying to teach them. And, and like many of the sessions were like this title, it was like how not to get screwed in the fashion industry, the music industry and so on and so on. And so I had been going to a couple of these meetups before I left. And when I started to, you know, after I kind of got home, it was, it was maybe before I got home. Cause I think I had started to put together early thoughts of like, I'm so fortunate to have this education. I'm so fortunate to gain this experience practically in a city like London. It's like one of the best cultural capitals in the world, as you know. Um, 
I want to share that. It's it's sort of my duty to share that. Like this is a privilege I have. I, I've always been hardwired that way. So I got back to Canada. I got settled again. The guilt started to come, you know, but gratitude came first. And how do you how do you express gratitude in a situation like that? Like that's a really hard one to figure out. It's like, who am I writing a thank you note to? Like, hey, terrorist group, thanks for not blowing me up that day. Like, no, they didn't care. It wasn't for me, you know? Um, hey, whoever intervened universally, cosmically, what and like, thanks for throwing me a solid. Like, like that's a hard one too. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna live my gratitude and I'm going to give what I have. And therein began the journey. And and I thought, well, what do I have? I have a load of debt. Okay, no one wants that. Um, you know, I got a lot of papers. No one wants to read my paper. They'll put them to sleep. Like if you're can't sleep, I'll send you a paper. But um, but I thought I can help. I can help with what I have. And I might not have many material things. I might not have a lot of cash, but I'm a pretty smart cookie. I I'm gonna figure this out. And so it didn't take long. I started to call around. I cold called. I've cold called. That's been my, my MO for a long time. If I want to do something, I'm going to cold call you. And uh, I cold called an artist collective here in Ottawa. I cold called the department, the government department responsible for the arts. I cold called a bunch of law firms. And I was like, listen, I saw this cool thing and I want to get it going. And we can totally do this here. And we don't need money to do this like I just need you you've got credibility you know what you're doing I've got energy like if we put them in a bowl and mix them up something's gonna come out let's see and um surprisingly they all said yes which was very cool for me they did they said yes they're like all right kid like whatever let's go and and there it began and as soon as I saw I could put my gratitude and my sadness into service it started to sparkle again. It was great. Amazing. So let's talk about the program in London and how that led directly, indirectly, sounds like more directly to Project in Kind. Yeah, super directly. Um, so the London program, the Pro Bono Legal, um, Legal Clinic, Law is expensive, you know, if you're an, a creator, an artist, anybody in business, you know, if you have to call a lawyer, like you're cringing a little because it's going to cost more than you really want to pay. You probably didn't budget it all. Some people do, but, you know, it's not always the case. You can control those costs and yet they're necessary costs. They're really important. They're important as a strategy when you're building anything out. You kind of have to know how to protect that thing that you're doing that you love and you're putting your heart into. Um, for artists and creators, I mean, some of the best lawyers certainly here are wild expensive, like, you know, 400 plus an hour, very, very expensive. And if you're trying to make it in, in the creative community, you know, like a very small percent of people ever really turn big money in the space, like really, really small. It's, it's generally humble, passion type projects that carry on and carry on. You, you know, if you, if you can make some money, it's really good. But I thought, well, you know what? I'm gonna increase the odds of someone making money if I can give them that better start for free. And in Canada, we don't really have a tradition like, like exists in the US for pro bono legal support. It's not really there. And so we set up the first ever um, multidisciplinary or cross-disciplinary pro bono legal arts clinic for, for Canadian creators. So anybody was welcome. It was um, 
set up to be legal information. We had to be very cautious about how we worded things, but we were welcoming, you know, not only people in theater or dance or music, you know, or film, we were welcoming digital artists and graphic artists. And I can tell you at the time, this was in kind of like around 2010. So it took a few years to get going. But 2010, 11, 12, we were framing it. There were, there was one volunteer clinic for visual artists. So like the painters, the sculptors and so on. We found one that had um, a little bit with film, but nobody was offering at all because they just there weren't that many lawyers in the space and the internet sort of process for content distribution at the time was still very young. So we came out like at, at the right moment at the right time and, and the clinic got stood up. It was about a year and a half into it that I started to run the math because I thought to myself, I know the value of these lawyers time. I know their hourly rates. I'm very familiar. Um, does our community understand? Because it was more than that. We were getting like gallery space, beautiful gallery space to host these events. We were getting um, the lawyers. We were getting though also other professionals in the in the various industries to come and spend their time and accountants. Like you, th you think of whoever you might need to do well to set up your business. We were reaching out to them. And of course we were having skilled volunteers. I wasn't even, I think, yeah, yeah I was a lawyer by then, but um, a couple of people helping us were still law students. And so they weren't, you know, a lawyer's rate, but they definitely had more knowledge than the average volunteer and they were sharing their skills. And so I just did a quick bit of math on the back of my napkin. And like in a year, I realized we had over $40,000 of in-kind contribution. And then I started wondering, how can I say thank you? It kind of a repeat question, like how do I express gratitude for this now? Um, you know, a thank you card, yes, but... I wanted to do more than a thank you card. I wanted to really like help their business. Like, how can I like high five you in a business way? And, and that's when it really all started to flourish. And I realized, you know what? I bet this would work in other professions. I bet this would work with other types of companies. I bet we could tackle other problems. And you know what? I can take some learnings from marketing and advertising and say, thank you. Um, how could we get going there? And then, then it went. <laughs> so starts off small, like many things, all things begin with a beginning. You see success in one area, two areas, largely around professional services for the arts community, and then say, hey, we can take this both horizontal and vertical and go wide and deep. Give us the project in kind origin story. <laughs> so um so you got kind of the first half of it which was you, you know the back of the, the the napkin math and then we started to test the idea so like, like you know the good housekeeping symbol sure the company's got this good housekeeping seal like it's a seal of approval and when customers see it they're like we love this and so on. so we actually started with a sticker um and i thought okay what businesses want to even be associated with in-kind giving and kindness like is this just bluff? Is this just a like, will they, who will like this? And so we literally went out to the street um, and started walking up and down our local main streets and, and talking to the different owners of small, medium businesses. We called the managing partners of various types of service firms. We checked in with government. We called schools, universities. Like we just, I just thought, let's just see, do they even want to be associated? That was the first question. 
And the answer was very, very quickly, yes. Then it was like, well, will they pay for it? And then the answer again was, well, yes. And it was like, okay, well, that's nice, but that's just a sticker. How do I get them like actually engaged? Um, is this something that I can build more than a sticker? Can we make a network? And then um, in 2013, that was kind of the idea we were kicking around. There was sort of an intervening event at that same time where again, I was having these big questions. And I thought, you know what, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm, we're just gonna see what happens. And so, um, yes, was the answer. So the community wanted more than just a sticker. They actually wanted community and they wanted cross connection. So the guys who ran, you know, the awesome bike shop actually wanted to be connected to the coffee shop and the coffee shop wanted to be connected to the drugstore and the drugstore wanted to be connected to the bank and the bank wanted to be connected to the pro sports teams. And so it went. The city wanted to be connected to all of them. The federal government wanted to be connected to all of them. So this, this desire for connection, you know, horizontal, vertical, diagonal, every which way you can imagine, it's, um, it's prevalent everywhere, period. When you're talking about doing something good, when you come to the table to people and you say, cool, uh, who's up for, put your hand up if you want to tackle poverty this time. And so we started to pick single focus issues. So big issues like poverty. Um, and then we drill it down and we'd say, okay, what about poverty? Well, let's shine a spotlight where there needs to be more spotlight. Let's talk about kids living with their families in poverty. And that was our first event we did with our community in 2015. Um, by this point, we gave ourselves a name. Um, it was called Kind Village. And, and that was just very much not hyper-creative. Again, for your listeners, are probably rolling their eyes like, well, that's pretty obvious. But, um, you know, we were trying to test things here. Uh, and so we called it Kind Village because that's what we want to build, Kind Villages. And um, we saw everybody come to the table. We said, we're going to collect pajamas. Little, little do people know that children living in poverty with their families often don't have PJs. Um, they don't have PJs because it's not a necessity. They can sleep, you know, in their diaper. They can sleep in their clothes. But it's actually a necessity um, for kids to grow up well, to come out of poverty. A solid nighttime routine is essential. There was so much re research coming out of the US, you know, Carter's, Oshkosh, even Oprah Winfrey, I think has been behind some of these big pushes around this specific topic. And in Canada, there had been nothing, like no one was talking about it. And, and it was a wonderful woman in the community. She had this great idea. And I said, you know what? I have an idea too. Can we like tag team and try this out? we'll grab your cause, you roll with us on the process and, and it worked. And so we brought together over 30 companies at, that day. So we did, we did a one day thing. The city gave us free buses. So anybody that wanted to come to this, we set it up like an event, could take a city bus for free to come. So awesome in-kind contribution. They were foregoing actually quite a bit of money for that. We had um, the most beautiful venue on our pro sports kind of complex. So in Ottawa, we've got this wicked, um, you know, soccer pitch and football field and ice rink, they're all in the sort of central area. We got uh, we got the, the owners of the teams and the stadium to give us that space. So we got that in kind. And then we had, um, there was a farmer's market that's often hosted there. The farmers brought us, you know, breakfast stuff. The coffee shop brought us breakfast. The bagel shop, my, I know you love bagels, my favorite bagels. The bagel shop brought us the bagels, you know, it was like breakfast. And we hosted what we called the family pajama party in the capital. And the idea being you could come in your PJs or not, you could bring new or gently used PJs. We were collecting them for several charities that were helping families in need. And it did what I hoped it would do. 
it like blew the roof off. It was full. There were hundreds of people that came through. We had no dollars, zero dollars for everything. Like there was no dollar spent because we didn't have it. Um, but we had the best party ever. It was fully decorated. We had all the mascots. We had everything you could imagine, a full day of fun. But the best part was we collected over 500 pairs of PJs for kids. We also collected diapers. We collected food, toys, and money. And we weren't asking for money. So when you start to realize that as people learn about issues, the more you can teach them about the problem and give them a clear pathway to being part of a solution, the faster, the easier, the clearer it is, you'll get there on almost any issue. And so that day, what we did with the money, because we're not fundraisers, we're trying to find alternative ways to support and say thank you to the community, thank you to the businesses, make a dent on something tough. Um, we asked we asked the charities that were involved, there were several, as I mentioned, and we said, what do you need? Like, forget us just handing you cash. What do you actually need? And we got a very specific list of things they needed. We divided the money up equally. Then we went to the stores and we bartered and negotiated for extra product and discounts to make that money go further. And the charities didn't have to do that. We did that for them. And we were really happy to do that for them. So they got, they got more than PJs. They got all kinds of stuff, but they also got hundreds and hundreds of new people in the city that didn't really know who they were before. So all of a sudden we've turned an impact opportunity into awesome advertising, but then it also becomes even harder to say you can't solve a problem together because you can. And we tested the framework with food and hunger. We did that, you know, in another project, we've, we've done several different avenues of things right now. We're doing one in Ukraine, um, which is pretty cool, but yeah. So that's, that's kind of a little bit of the journey. We asked, you know, we asked them after that, we kept going with our community for a number of years and said, what, do you, what could help you? And we started building a tool um, and tools. And so that's kind of where we're at now is we're, we're building tools and we've launched a movement. <laughs> and so Kind Village grows to Project In Kind, doing business in one vertical grows to many. Talk about where you are now, Tanya, and part of what we're privileged to get to do is to try to help you expand and build on what you're doing, going from Ottawa to other parts of Canada, other parts of North America, and ultimately around the world. But talk about where you are now and your vision for the future. Sure. So um, in, in 2019, so we've been at this point going for quite a while as a group of volunteers, and we took a hard look at things and we said, okay, we could do events. We could do one of events, but how's that going to scale? Like the events for context, if you've ever planned events, you know, events take quite a bit of time. They take far more time than most people realize. But if you're going to tackle a problem in a humble kind of way, um, you have to be a student before you can be a leader. And it took us, you know, one and a half to two years before every event to get it going and just so and making sure we brought the right stakeholders together before we you know, pretended to know anything about an issue. So in 2019, we thought, okay, we've we've proven the point. This is good. There's a lot of opportunity to scale and grow. What now? What did we need in our mix of, of things, you know, to get going? We had, you know, our name on, it's actually permanently on a national museum's wall um, with innovation. We've known to lots of different brands. We've proven the opportunity for impact. Um, but people need not just a community and a widget, they need a movement. They need something to drive their hearts, you know, toward their own causes that give them that extra push past, you know, the promise to help out the door to actually go do the help that they've promised to do. And, and that's a tough one to overcome surprisingly. 
So we, we thought, okay, let's do the movement. Um, the sustainable development goals are awesome as a framework. So whether you like the UN or not doesn't actually matter to me. It is not the point. The point is there's a common set of goals that talk about interrelated complex issues that mean different things in different communities, but they're present in almost every community. So this gives us a shared place to start. And we love we love that. That's great. Somewhere to start that's common and shared is very good for, for doing a global thing. Um, and so we said, okay, what if we could get one billion? Like, I love billion. Billion's so great. I often like invent numbers like bajillion, but I rolled with billion this time. And, and I was like, what if we get like a billion in-kind contributions by 2030? So it's plenty of time toward the goals. And by that, we mean to organizations that are working on problems that address the UN global goals. Um, poverty, no hunger, uh, all global goals, health and well-being, a global goal. So when you really start picking it apart, like every charity has an opportunity to connect into the goals. So perfect. So I'm not gonna tell you what charity to go to. I'm gonna say, let's work together and figure it out and let's do this. Like, let's just count because you start to count things that haven't been really counted before. And you start to put value to things that haven't really been valued before, even dollars and cents wise, you can start to look at the ecosystem in an entirely new way. And it's really exciting. And you also invite new people to the table. So we launched the, the Project in Kind Global Movement at the World Economic Forum in 2020, conveniently, inconveniently, right ahead of COVID. Um, and we ended up, you know, getting a little bit of money from the government. They said, look, we love this. Can you make a post-secondary school program? Can you start to build the platform? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so we got to work on that. But like most people, most charities um, and nonprofit organizations, business, everybody was disrupted in one way, shape or form. And we were too. And so we just became hyper resourceful. We created a report um, of COVID and kind giving just to showcase and capture that moment in time where you could really see companies making contributions. Like it wasn't, yes, there was cash cash appeals, but it was like, we need PPE, um, we need food. Supply chains have been disrupted. So if our cash can't get it today, like we still need it. So who can send it to us? Um, and so that's where we've been going. So we're in Ottawa primarily still. Um, we have started to explore right ahead of COVID. We had started to explore the U.S. We were creating some partnerships in Denver, a wonderful community there, reaching out lightly to California, to New York and Europe a little bit. Um, and we got a small bit delayed, but no trouble. We're going to get back to it now. And uh, yeah, we're looking to bring people on to join the movement and help us and just share with us, you know, the numbers, like what are they giving in kind? How can we how can we tell that story and inspire everybody? Absolutely fantastic story and, and so inspirational you're making a difference in people's lives and to tell the story as you did going from uh, July 7 in London, a, a tragic day, uh, 777 still resonates in London as 9-11 does here in America. It's an incredible story, Tanya. And I can't tell you how much I enjoyed having you here and how committed we are to helping you achieve your vision. I, I think, you know, one of the great proverbs from Nelson Mandela, and I won't get the words exactly right, but the way you fill your cup is by filling other people's cups. And uh, you know that and live that life as well as anyone who I've ever met. It's been a privilege to get to know you and to hear your story. I love it. And I'm thrilled that we got a chance to 
talk about your journey and project in kind here on Great Mind. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for making space for us, Matt. We're excited to work with you and, and the community. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic.